Well, one of the pastors on our preaching team told us a parable this week. He said, what do you think? Two women heard a weatherman give a weather report that said there would be snow and ice. The first woman said she was going to go outside and drive down the hill anyway. And then she didn't. The other woman heard the weather report and vowed to stay indoors, then went driving in the ice anyway. Which of these women do you think took the weatherman seriously? Which do you think understood the authority of the weatherman trained to do the weather? Which one trusted the weatherman to have her best interest in mind? You see, some of us, uh, some of us learned those lessons this week, didn't we? Uh, and by the way, when you leave, you probably should not look at the taillight in my truck <laughs> too carefully. There are some lessons that we can learn the hard way, and there are other lessons that when they come, if we learn them the hard way, it's too late. And that's why today we need to listen to Jesus. If you recall before the ice storm, uh, a couple Sundays ago, Jesus had a very interesting conversation with some religious leaders about authority. They came to him and asked him, by what authority to do these things? And he didn't answer. He just said, well, let me ask you a question. He asked them a question about the baptism of John, and they chose not to answer him. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then these next couple sections really open up for us the authority of Jesus. These next two parables or stories uh, tell us really what it looks like to submit to the authority of Jesus or not. And so, uh, if, you don't, if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21, um, beginning in verse 28. And when we read that, I want you to see that access to the kingdom of God is a gift that comes to you upon repenting and receiving the Son. You enter the kingdom of heaven when you repent and change your mind about Jesus and submit to Him. And so I want to ask you first, what do you think about these two sons? In fact, that's the question Jesus asked, isn't it? Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? What is in question here is the will of the father, or you could say the authority of the father. It does follow from the preceding conversation that Jesus had with these same people. They knew that all authority was granted from heaven, but couldn't, admit, couldn't bring themselves to admit it. 
And as you look at these two sons, the reaction of the first son is completely unacceptable. I mean, what Jewish son would listen to his father ask him to go work in the field and say no? I mean, how spoiled does he have to be? First of all, to have the luxury of not working in the field already. But to have the luxury of sitting at home and playing video games. I think the listeners would be shocked that there was such a son who would refuse his own father. I don't think the audience would gasp quite so loudly at the response of the second son, though. He appears respectful. He looks like someone who goes to church every Sunday. And he may have even intended to go into the vineyard. He had a, maybe a good uh, intention, a good thought about it. But he didn't go, did he? We learn very quickly that his good intentions were just a facade. He gave lip service to the wishes of his father, but that's really all. And so we're left to to weigh which of these people gets it right. If we were to be like one of these sons, which one should we be like? And I think the key thing to note here is that A change of mind precedes obedience. Without a change of mind, the first son would never have done the will of the Father. And that's the point. He changes his mind. The first son changed his mind and went. The word translated change of mind isn't the same one that a lot of times you hear preachers talk about when they talk about repentance. This one has more to do with regret. More like, oh, wish I hadn't said that. Wish it could have been different than it was. That's the feeling of this first son. And so, I have to ask you, where do you know? Where do you know what the Lord wants? You know it. It's not a a mystery. Where do you know what the Lord wants you to do and you can't bring yourself to do it? You go to bed at night after messing it up and you say, I wish it could have been different. I want to encourage you with that though. Because I mean, if, if you don't have anything like that, well, you're not normal, first of all. But if you are normal and you do have that, I want to encourage you that the first son reminds us that it's not too late. It's not too late to change your mind. Well, Jesus doesn't leave us, really, with uh, any questions about what to do about this, does He? He continues to explain what He meant by this story. He asked, which one did the will of His Father? And they said, the first, verse 31, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And right there, he says what the issue is, doesn't he? You did not change your mind and believe. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God belongs to those who repent and believe. The prospect that prostitutes and tax collectors would even get in to the kingdom of God seemed foreign and ridiculous to these religious leaders. They, of all people, were the ones that should be on the outside. Yet Jesus brings them into the story and says, these are people like that first son who initially said no. Initially, they did what was culturally unacceptable. Initially, they rebelled beyond your imagination. But then, but then they had a change of mind. But then, they did not stay there. And I think that's the thing that I want to encourage you with. You don't have to stay where you are either. It's so much easier, isn't it, to change and to repent and to uh, change your mind when it's obvious to everyone that you're wrong. When you look right to admit that you're wrong, then causes all kinds of questions and all kinds of insecurity, and you wonder, who's going who's gonna to wonder about me? Everyone thought I was okay. Now I'm admitting I'm not. Now what? That's where the first son was. Really not where the tax collection sinners were or tax collection prostitutes because they were obviously wrong. So for them to turn and change their mind was not that difficult. And then Jesus doesn't just say they're going to get into the kingdom of God. Good for the tax collectors and prostitutes, they're going in. No, that's not what he says. He turns to the religious leaders and he says, they're going in before you. They're the ones that have the reserve tickets. If you get in, it'll only be general admission. It's unthinkable for someone that bad, isn't it? To be in front of me in line. It reminds me of what Jesus said, the first shall be last. Right, the whole line turns around. We don't like the line turning around. We like to be in the front of the line. Jesus says it's going to turn around. Clearly, Jesus told this story in this way to obliterate the smugness that they had about having it all right. About being so in with God without repentance. You don't get in with God without a change of mind. You don't get in with God without leaving the old and turning to God for the new. The only qualification that you need to enter the kingdom of God is to change your mind and admit you don't have the qualifications. See, I think so many of us, we don't want to say this because we know better, but we live as though we're getting in on our qualifications. 
We're the ones that do it right. We're the ones that have the right answers. Jesus called out these religious leaders, these religious people, because they were unwilling to change their mind. They were unwilling to repent. The tax collectors and the prostitutes felt their shame. It was in front of them every single day. Not so much religious leaders. They didn't have to face it. All eyes were on them in admiration. But much to the surprise of everyone, the qualifications for the kingdom of God are simply a change of mind. To repent and submit to the authority of Jesus. See, that's the message. That's the message. This is why he told a story. Is where do you get your authority from? Well, let me tell you a story. Get my authority from the Father. Access to the kingdom of God is for those who repent. But much to the surprise of most of us, and I think this is really important for us, um, because I love the church that you attend. I love our doctrinal statement. I love that every Sunday we open the Bible and we look for answers in it. Yet, what may surprise most of us is that you don't get into the kingdom of God by having the right answers. The second son had the right answers. See, what you say, even in an altar call, doesn't really matter. It's whether or not you've had a change of mind toward God. You've moved toward God and away from the old life, really. And so what about you? Does that change of mind characterize your life? Or are you more like the second son, given the good answer, tell them what they want to hear, look like you're supposed to look, and continue your own way? That's why Jesus tells this first story. And now we turn to the second story, which exposes really more about the way that the second son looked to the father. The first story tells us the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they looked like the first son. They said no and then did yes. These tenants we're about to read about, they, did, they said yes and did no. So what do you think about the two sons now? What do you think about the wicked tenants? Verse 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenant to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant. And beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants. 
more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But the tenants saw the son, and they said to themselves, aha, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we'll have the inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, I don't know how, what kind of movies you watch, but I hope the movies you watch are not as bloody and violent as the Bible that you read. Because this is awful, isn't it? This is a violent, bloody, and savage story. It's almost even hard to imagine that it would go down like this. But Jesus tells us, like, yeah, this is what happened. But like the authority of the Father is in question in the first story, the authority of the landowner is at question in the second story. Does he have the right to ask for what the tenants agreed with him for? Will they honor him? Will they honor their agreement with him? After all, the owner's put in a lot of work. He's um, he is really uh, owed his share of the crop, isn't he? And so I want you to imagine for a moment what was going through the minds of these tenants. I mean, I, I can hardly imagine it. But what they did is there, there was sort of a statute of limitations, you might say, on their lease, that if somehow the lease stayed in their name and they, uh, the, um, the landowner didn't uh, require or didn't receive payment that the, the title of the vineyard may transfer over to the, tenant, or to the tenants. And so they're conniving and they're talking to one another and trying to figure out how, how is this going to happen in our favor? And what they did is they made a short-sighted trade. They decided they would trade something right now, like we're going to get control of this inheritance, for something long-term. I mean, they could have stayed there forever, as far as we know. And the short-sighted trade that they made doesn't take into account and this is, I think, the important thing. It doesn't take into account the character or the ability, the power, or even the reality, does it, of the landowner. There's nobody going to do anything about this. I can do whatever I want, and no one's going to do anything about it. How many people, really, Approach life that way. Approach God that way. Like, He's not real. He's not going to, there's going to be no accounting later on. I can do whatever I want to do and nothing will happen. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to work the system so it plays out in my favor. And they made this short term bet, not realizing that there would be long term retaliation on the part of the landowner. 
And so again, I need to ask you, in what ways are you short-sighted? In what ways are you acting today as though there's no future, as though there's no accounting, as though there's no uh, judgment by the Lord? What momentary pleasure, what status symbol, what personal gain have you traded for the kingdom of God? You didn't maybe not mean to trade it, but again, you're, you're acting in such a short-sighted way that you don't really even know you're trading it. What do you think of those tenets? Well, Jesus wants to make sure we know what to think about the tenets, doesn't he? He tells us uh, the rest here in verses 41 46, he tells us what he wants this to mean to us. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. And he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. First of all, is that the right answer or the wrong answer? That's the right answer, isn't it? They know. They know exactly why Jesus told this story. So Jesus then said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard the, his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Don't you love the, the clear admission that they know what this is about? There is no mystery. They don't need a preacher up front to tell them. They know. And this has, this has a creepy irony to it, doesn't it? I mean, after all, Jesus, in a couple chapters, is going to say, Jerusalem is a city that stones its prophets. He said in Matthew 20, 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus knows what he's telling them. I mean, we, we like the rest of this text, don't we? How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her, gathers her brood under her wings. You would not. The tenderness with which Jesus will treat those who turn is unbelievable. Why would you not turn? Why would you not change your mind? But see, the creepy irony is not just that Jesus knows what he's talking about, but so do they. 
And then, not only did they perceive that he's telling a story about them, just days later, hours later, they do the very same thing, don't they? They kill the son that was sent to them. Wow. God has taken the initiative over and over and over and over. And they fail to take advantage of it. God has given them every benefit. And yet they still reject him. And they're very clear. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. Now just in, just in case... Some of you are paying extremely close attention. And you notice that he says the kingdom of God here when these other parables Jesus has told have been about the kingdom of heaven. Okay? I just think that he's treating them as synonyms. He's not meaning something different by them. So don't get uptight about that. But the kingdom of God is taken away from the religious. It's taken away from the people of Israel and it's given to a different people who will produce its fruits. Isn't that interesting? It will be given to a people. I think here, Jesus is envisioning the church. He is seeing very clearly that instead of Israel as the vineyard of the Lord, the church will become the vineyard of the Lord. The church will be the centerpiece in God's story. It will no longer be an ethnic organization, but these people will be identified by their lives, by the fruit that they bear in their lives. Now Jesus, in this teaching, uh, highlights John the Baptist. This is the second time isn't it, that he's highlighted John the Baptist. You didn't pay attention to, what, you know, first of all, when they questioned his authority, he said, where's John's baptism from? So he brings up John the Baptist there, and now he brings him up again with the uh, tax collectors and the prostitutes. They listened to John the Baptist, and they had a change of mind. What about you? When John the Baptist was teaching in the wilderness, what did he say? He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It is the change of mind that will then produce fruit in your life. And it's the people who then live that way and produce that kind of fruit that will become the new tenants in the vineyard. Now, Jesus isn't just making this up out of nowhere. This has been, this is an image I want you to recognize. This is one of those images that kind of ties your Bible together. This is an image that God has long used for Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 um, says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Hmm. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And then listen to the, 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 how the language sounds the same as the story Jesus tells. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove the hedge and it will be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Now, this is why I'm reading this to you. Clearly, Jesus had this image in mind that the Israel was the vineyard, and now these tenants had continued to kill the, the people that were sent by the landowner. And then what? Then he's going to turn it over to people who bear fruit. What kind of fruit is he looking for? Fruit in keeping with repentance. What is, what is that? Look at here this last verse, verse 7. It says, And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, the fruit he's looking for here are justice and righteousness. The fruit of this turning away from the Lord is a concern that the right thing gets done. It is a concern that you are before God right. So that you're right both before God and before men. Justice and righteousness. Now justice and righteousness, of course, can look a lot of different ways depending on the circumstances. For some, it may merely be, but probably not. But some, it might be. Merely a change of mind, an internal change of mind, a private adjustment that, yes, in fact, the underpinning of my life is now different because I heed the call of God. But for some, in fact, for most, it has some level of public adjustment. For some, it might have to do with forgiveness. For others, maybe it's what you do with your money. For others, it might be your concern for the way that your employees are treated, or the way your neighbors are treated, or the way those that are unlike you are treated. You have a concern for public justice. Maybe you're going to treat your children right. Maybe the righteousness is the way that you speak with your spouse. Jesus is looking for those who bear the fruit, looking for justice and righteousness. I can't say what it will be for you, but it's going to be justice and righteousness. See, Jesus doesn't say, if you just do this, if you just pray this prayer, you're good. If you just get this magic thing, it'll be fine. There is a button you push, and it will be okay. 
He says, I'm looking for you to live a life of justice and righteousness. Not just one thing, but whatever it is, it has to do with the authority of Jesus. And a a heart that adjusts itself to what Jesus wants from you. Of course, you get that authoritative word from Jesus in the Bible. Now, to drive this point home, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 about the stone that the builders rejected. This is, this is perhaps his favorite story, his favorite Old Testament quote. In fact, it's one of the great chords that holds the, whole, the Old Testament and New Testament together. It goes throughout the whole Bible. And for Jesus to quote is a stroke of genius, really, because he asked them, have you not read? When, in fact, he knows they've read it. Because this was a song that was sung the great festivals of Israel. As they're on their way to Jerusalem, one of the things that they sing in Psalm 118, in verse 21, says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. He quotes it almost directly. Then we're, we're more familiar with the last one, verse 24, aren't we? This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Because that's not the good news of this, frankly. Even though sometimes you talk that way when you come to church. The good news of Psalm 118 is that Jesus has become the cornerstone. That, if you, that you must deal with Jesus or else. Because Jesus lists this image from Psalm 118, and he says, essentially, I am the rock. And we see that throughout the New Testament. 1 Peter 2 and Romans 9. That Jesus is the rock. One, one commentator, because he talks about the, the one who falls on it will uh, fall to pieces. The other one, if it falls on you, you'll be crushed. Like, what is, what is happening? Who's doing what to what? Okay. If the pot falls on the rock, the pot, woe to the pot, right? If the rock falls on the pot, woe to the pot. Doesn't really matter. You've got to deal with Jesus. Again, this rock image carries throughout the Scripture, and, and probably I think Jesus has in mind Isaiah chapter 8 as well. Um, when he says that, I'll begin in verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. That's, that's really good advice. I'm just going to stop and acknowledge that. I'm not going to talk about it. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. What's he saying? He's saying that you can respond to Jesus in two ways. This rock. Really. You can stumble over him, and he'll become a snare become a rock of offense and you'll fall and be broken 
You can say, I'm going to be just fine without Jesus. You can say that. Or he can be for you a sanctuary and a protection and one who keeps you safe. Which is Jesus going to be for you? Sanctuary or stone of offense? Daniel chapter 2, I don't want to read it, but Daniel chapter 2 brings up the idea of this stone again. Only Daniel chapter 2 is there is this vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has of this um, uh, uh, idol, statue, humongous statue, and he dreams about it, and he can't figure it out. And he comes to Daniel, Daniel tells him about the dream. He tells him what he dreamed as well as what the dream was about. And he said, oh, there's a, there's a head of gold, and you know, that's you. And then there's this mixed uh, body, and then there's this feet of clay. And then he said, there's this rock that kind of comes out of nowhere, tumbling down from the mountains, and it smashes. This statue and pulverizes it. You see, Jesus will not only do that on an individual level, you're going to need to deal with Jesus. He's going to be a rock of offense or a sanctuary for you. But Jesus is going to do that for the world. Jesus is going to do that in history, He's going to do that for the nation. They're going to have to deal with Him. Or be blown up. Because Jesus is pressing the point. You're going to have to deal with me. This first story, of course, is about the authority of the Father. The second is about the authority of the landowner. It makes sense then that these stories are told to call into account those who will dismiss the authority of Jesus. And people do it for different reasons. See, and I think, I think it's important that you kind of look inside and think about this for a minute. Why do people not, why doesn't everybody submit to the authority of Jesus? If it's really such a good deal, why doesn't everybody do it? Well, the second son, I suspect the second son thought about it for a minute and decided that the will of the Father was inconvenient. The will of the Father kind of kept him from doing what he wanted to do. Couldn't be on his phone all day and still go outside and work in the vineyard. And so it was easier to say yes and do no than it was to change his mind and submit to his father. And so what's inconvenient for you? What does Jesus ask of you? What do you know from the Scripture about how you treat other people? About how you entertain yourself? You know what the will of the Lord is. But just doesn't really fit very well. It's actually easier to remain angry than to humble yourself and apologize or forgive, isn't it? And so, what's inconvenient? And then I think there's the vineyard tenants. 
you'd have to say it's way more than just inconvenience that's causing them to reject the authority of the landowner, isn't it? They are willful. They, are, they do not want the authority of the landowner. And they disguise, well, they don't really disguise it, I don't think, but other people disguise this willful rejection of Jesus in a variety of ways. I mean, they did, the, the religious leaders did when they asked Jesus the question, didn't they? By what authority do you do these things? And he says, well, where did the baptism of John come from? And they said, we don't know. And they disguised their willful rejection of Jesus with ignorance. And the disguise really doesn't cover up very much, does it? And you need to know, too, that if you're disguising something, it doesn't cover up very much. I mean, what if, what if you said this? And you fill in the blank. I have no intention of blank. It, God is asking too much of me if He's asking me to do blank. What is that blank for you? If you do that, you're willfully rejecting the authority of Jesus. You can't always see it. That's the problem. You can't always see that this is happening, even in your own heart. People will say, I'll take Jesus as long as I don't have to do what He says. As long as my life doesn't have to change. As long as I, I'll take Jesus as long as I can add Him to the things I already like to do. The question for many people is, how do I fit Jesus into my already full life? And the quick answer is this. You don't. You don't. You adjust your life to Him. He's the rock. Rocks don't adjust. You adjust to the rock. And it's striking to me that these stories are told the very week that they are enacted, aren't they? That Jesus the Son does come to the vineyard. That Jesus the Son is killed outside the city. That ultimately the tax collectors and the sinners, and you and me, we get to enter the kingdom of God because this Son came to rescue us. He does come to be the head of the corner so that you can build your life on Him instead of building it on sand as Jesus tells in a different story. He does come to be this chief cornerstone. And if you resist Him, He will fall on you and will crush you. What we see from the tenants, what we see from these boys in this home is that it's not how good you look that gets you into the kingdom of God. It's how you change your mind about your sin and rebellion. And it's about how you receive the Son. And that's going to change your life. It's not going to be the right answer. It's going to be the life change that happens. It's my hope and prayer that each of us will adjust 
that our church in total will adjust ourselves to the leadership and authority of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is a humbling thing to read. Don't let us, don't let me be someone who misses Jesus, who is so busy, who is so preoccupied, who is so willful, so as not to adjust my life to yours. God, would you help us to embrace and welcome the Son that we might have life in the kingdom of God. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.